Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. Uh, But I want to direct our attention this evening for a few brief moments to the Bible, and particularly to Jesus Christ, to see how the Bible speaks about rest, the dilemma it presents, and what Jesus said about rest, and did to solve the dilemma and secure rest for his people. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for this evening, this time to be together, to worship you, to rest in your word, to rest as a community on the day of rest. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word and refresh us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be referring to the the Bible passages that are listed there throughout my sermon. I'm not going to read them all at the front, but uh, you'll see me refer to them throughout. But the first question I want to look at is, how does the Bible speak about rest? And as you read the Bible, you realize that the Bible speaks early and often about rest, like a beautiful piece of music with refrains and crescendos and diminuendos. Rest is woven directly into creation. God's creation song in Genesis 1 has several beautiful refrains. One of those refrains is, let there be, and God would say, let there be, and as soon as he said it, creation would spring forth. Another refrain was God delighting in what he had created. Day after day after day, he would say, it is good. God's creation song builds to a beautiful crescendo when he creates Adam and Eve in his own image and says, not only is it good, but it is very good. And then there's a decrescendo that turns into, you guessed it, a long rest. Yes, when God finished singing the first six movements of creation's song, he inserted a long rest. The whole seventh verse of creation's song was a holy rest in Genesis 2. God blessed the seventh day, the day of rest, and made it holy. So rest is not only woven into creation, but it was also uniquely blessed and set apart by God as holy. So what does this mean? It means rest is not just good and beautiful, but necessary to realizing what it means to be fully human. Even in a perfect world before it had been marred by sin, rest was essential. In fact, you could argue that resting in God's finished work is what it means to be a rightly ordered human being. For that is the first and most essential task that our first parents were given. Remember, in the song of creation, Adam and Eve were brought forth on the sixth day, day six. So their first full day, at least from their perspective, was day seven, the Sabbath. As human beings, their first and most essential task was not their work of ruling and subduing creation. It was to rest in God's finished work. 
in his provision and goodness. And only by resting in God's finished work, and only then, could they rightly work and live and rule and subdue creation. And in fact, a huge problem developed when instead of recognizing God's good provision and resting in the sufficiency of it, they were tempted to look elsewhere. A deceiver convinced them to order their lives differently. Rather than trusting God's provision and his promises and his goodness, his work and his character, our first parents chose their own way. As they entertained the serpent's seduction in Genesis 3, which was, did God really say? And in doubting God and his provision and promises and goodness, they took matters into their own hands. And their eyes were open for the first time to the restlessness of evil, to the restlessness of humanity being divorced from God. And as a result, they were blocked from the tree of life and the garden was replaced by a wilderness and everything was defiled by this fall, by this divorcing from God, separating themselves from him. Work turned into toil, intimacy turned into alienation, and life would turn into death. In short, rest was replaced by restlessness. So how does this apply? Does a sense of restlessness trouble you? Does it return again and again without welcome? Since the garden, humanity has been dogged by a lingering restlessness, frustration at work, irritation at home, dissatisfaction even at play, Even when we travel to beautiful places, we are vexed. This restlessness flows broad and it flows deep to the core. We are not only unsettled in our activities, but we're unsettled in our hearts, in our desires, in our souls. And since our first parents fell into sin, we look at life as someone might look into a a cracked or shattered mirror. The beauty reflected in that shattered image is still discernible, yet we could still see goodness, yet it's been defiled in every way. That means despite the brokenness of our shattered lives, we still catch a glimpse of the rest for which we were created. And we sense it in a summer breeze or a friend's embrace or in a job well done, and, and yet somehow we know that true rest, while experienced through those good things, is never found in them. For when we cling too strongly to them, the comfort they offer slips away. And try as we might, we cannot fully deny that we were made to rest in something more than anything creation can offer Even the most committed secularists and atheists have had the courage to admit that they cannot shirk a sense of the transcendent one who alone can give them the rest that their heart desires. Barbara Ehrenreich, who wrote uh, a book called Nickel and Dime, that's the one she's best known for, an atheist, describes a transcendent experience she had this way. She says... There were no visions, no prophetic voices, just this 
blazing everywhere. Something poured into me and I poured into it. Eskets, uh, ecstasy would have been the word for this, but only if you acknowledge that it does not occupy the same spectrum as happiness or euphoria, that it can resemble an outbreak of violence. Interestingly, Barbara's rationale for still considering herself an atheist after that event was that her experience bore no resemblance to the religious iconography that she had grown up with. See, she had been told by Christians that God was good, but her experience was that God was something wild. As an, ex- as an aside, dear Christian, let that be a warning to us never to fail to teach the whole counsel of God Unless we describe God as both good and terrifying, we are not describing the God of the Bible, the God that Barbara had an experience with. As C.S. Lewis quipped in his Chronicles of Narnia series, he is not safe, but he is good. Doesn't common sense tell us that any reasonable concept of God should both comfort and terrify for only a God powerful and majestic enough to create a universe with the billions of galaxies that's in our universe can be trusted to sustain and order it for our good. In other words, only a God who has the ability to terrify us is the God who has the power to comfort us with an unshakable rest. And this is the God pictured in the Bible Nearly all who experience his presence fall down as if dead. Ultimate rest can only be found in one who has absolute power. And that is the dilemma the Bible presents about rest. How can we find rest in such a God of power, particularly if we know we have angered him by our attitudes and choices and behaviors? We know that rest is central. It's sewn into the fabric of creation. We know rest can only be fully realized in God, but in pride, we've already desperately sought it elsewhere, trying to find it more in ourselves or our work or in creation than in him. And in fear, we wonder if the one powerful enough to provide the rest will still grant it after we've turned from him. And the answer to this dilemma is presented in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. He said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the same God who wrote and directed and performed this song of creation, who repeated whose repeated refrain throughout the song is, it is good, whose crescendo was creating humanity in his image and who consummated his song of creation with a holy rest so all creation could drink in his wonder and pause with delight. Paul is saying that that God has given us an even greater display of glory and it's not found in the expanse of the heavens or beholding creation, but it's found in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, look to him and you see absolute power, the absolute power of God manifested in the flesh 
for your good. What better way for God, the God of absolute power, to prove that he would use his power for our good than to come into the world in the weakness of a gurgling baby boy, to live a life of suffering, and to show how much he loved us by sacrificing himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. As we look to him, we can discover the rest that was lost through humanity's fall into sin. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is unapologetically direct Prophets always point to God, not to themselves, but Jesus, the greatest prophet, points to himself. He says, come to me, take my yoke. Are you tired from your labor? Are you heavy burdened? Come to me and I'll give you rest. True rest is found in a person, not an abstraction. And this is a deep rest. It cuts to the heart. For in verse 29, it says, I will give you rest for my soul's. And look at how it comes. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Rest comes as we yoke ourselves to Christ. Notice he is gentle and lowly. Therefore, we can know that he will use his power for our good. That is remarkable. But the really remarkable thing here is Jesus chose a most unexpected tool to give us rest, a yoke. A yoke is a large piece of wood used to bind cattle to one another and also to a heavy plow that turns the soil. Such tool does not sound very restful, not in the slightest. But it begins to make sense when we realize Jesus is not promising a rest of inaction, but the rest of connection, a connection to him, to his presence, his power, his strength, and his grace That is why Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. It's the type of rest that my children would ask for when we were out at the park and they were young and tired and they would say, dad, can you hold me? It was the rest of connection. It was the rest of working by clinging hold of dad. But what did Jesus do to secure his rest? The yoke Jesus mentions in Matthew 11 is a farming metaphor, but the literal yoke that Jesus refers to is the cross. The cross is what binds Jesus to his people. Romans 6, 8 says it this way. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. If we are yoked to Jesus, what happens to Jesus happens to us. What does this mean? Through Jesus, the original purpose of Sabbath is reclaimed. In creation, God called us to rest in his finished work, but in the fall, we lost that rest and have suffered with restlessness ever since. But in Jesus, God has provided a way for us to rest in his finished work yet again. But this time, we rest in the finished work of forgiving sinners by paying the price of their sin on the cross so that they could live without fear of punishment and thus live joyfully and thankfully in confidence that they are reconciled with God. 
And as the Israelites needed to rest in God's power to escape slavery in Egypt, so we need to rest in Christ's power to escape the slavery of sin and death. For we're not only united in the death of Christ and forgiven, but if we place our faith in Christ, we are united in the power of his resurrected life and set free from the power of death. This is not the rest of inaction, but the rest of faith of connecting ourselves to him and placing our trust in him, transferring it from ourselves and what we can do to God and what he has done. And like the Israelites, we cannot refuse this rest. And if we do, we should take warning because God gave the Israelites warning that those who failed to trust in the rest he provided would fail to enter that rest. The warning of the writer of Hebrews said it best when he wrote, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of us have, found fault, have uh, been found to fall short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Brothers and sisters, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in Christ. The hope of the gospel is not that we work to get right with God, not that we work to get his blessings, but that we cling hold of Christ and trust in him like a child clinging to its father for rest. And inasmuch as we do that, we find the rest our hearts desire, the, the rest that we, that the only rest that can satisfy. And inasmuch as we do that, we gain a taste of heaven where we will live and play and work, rested with joyful hearts, anticipating God's goodness because we are connected to his power and his grace. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your promise of rest in Christ. Thank you for answering the dilemma of the rest that we have lost by turning away from you. I pray for anyone here that is struggling with a sense of restlessness that you would draw them to yourself, show them what you have done for them in Christ. We pray this for your glory and for our satisfying rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.